The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, and right across from me is the one and the only Tammy, the underdog, Underwood. Morning, Tam. Well, that was a little anticlimactic. I know. Actually, I should say afternoon because it's 2.30 in the afternoon. It is in the afternoon right now. Holy shit, I thought it was like still noon o'clock or something. I know, I did too until my son called and asked me when I was going to be home. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Well, let's make this a quick episode. How about that? Okay. Yeah, because I think there's a lot that I can kind of skip through. Um, Yeah, because um, what we're going to, I'm going to basically talk about how the case broke. Okay. So breaking news happened on February 7th, 2002. The citizens of Vancouver were shocked by the latest breaking news story that day. Earlier in the day, Constable Catherine Galliford of the Vancouver PD held a press conference. She said that a search team had descended on the Picton Pig Farm along with an adjacent property which had been searched five years before. She said, and I quote, I can tell you a search is being conducted on that property and the search is being executed by the Missing Women Task Force. Now, the authorities had already arrested Robert and charged him with the illegal possession of a firearm. During his arraignment, he was granted bail and released from jail. However, by February 22nd, he was taken into custody again. That time it was for two counts of first degree murder. During the search of his property, the Vancouver Task Force search party had recovered DNA that identified at least two victims, Mona Wilson and Serena Abbotsway. Now, Robert issued a statement declaring he was shocked by the allegations against him. Aren't they all? Of course. Yeah. They can't be me. Not me. I'm appalled. How dare (laughs) you? They had the wrong. I was framed. (laughs) (laughs) I was the one who was framed because I'm not black and I'm proud. Weirdo. However, nobody was more shocked and agitated than the family members of the two women, especially since they had gone missing three years after the authorities searched his, the pig palace as a potential murder scene the first time. Right? And then right. they didn't put him under surveillance, remember? Then on April 3rd, he was back in court. <laughs> he was taken back to court and arraigned on three more first degree murder charges. The victims for that affidavit were Heather Bottomley, Jacqueline McDonald, and Diane Rock. A hooker named Bottomley. That is freaking epic. <laughs> that right there. She had to know what her career choice was with that last name. Like this. What's my last name? Bottomley? Oh, I'm like. Carrie Love. <laughs> oh, my God. I remember that story. Because, you know, that's what I heard firsthand. I <laughs> know. Cherry Love. You named your Cherry kid that. Love. So less than one week later, he was arraigned on a sixth charge of first-degree murder for Angela Josbury. Hold on. What's the count say? Six. Six, Six homicides. Yeah, wait. These other, four, oh, these other four victims had also gone missing and were murdered after Bill Hiscox had gone to the authorities with his suspicions about Robert being responsible for low-track disappearances. Also with Hiscox. <laughs> with Hiscox. Now, before the month was out, he had a seventh murder charge. The DNA of that victim was linked to Brenda Wolf. Now, the media announcements declaring Robert was facing seven murder charges led the public to ask so many questions. 
for instance. What does a penguin taste like? <laughs> no, they didn't ask that. Damn it, they should. They're in Canada, eh? <laughs> That's right, eh? They're closer to penguins, eh? That's right. For instance, they wanted to know why the Vancouver authorities had found no evidence on the pig farm when they first searched the property in 97 and again in 98. However, the most important question may have been, if Robert was still a major person of interest back then, how did he kidnap and kill low-track women between 1999 and 2001? Shouldn't law enforcement officials have had him and his property under surveillance? Right? Valid questions. Valid, valid. Yeah. I mean, because even with uh, when they first suspected Bobby Joe Long. Right. They had nothing to arrest him on, but they kept him under surveillance. Right. They kept a close eye on him. Yeah. Because he's a danger. Exactly. But we're talking Canada, so you never know. Oh, that's true, too. They're probably like, what do we do, eh? I don't know, eh? I don't know, How about know, you, eh? eh? Let's go get a beer, eh? <laughs> so on April 10th, before the seventh first-degree murder <coughs> charge was filed against Robert, the tabloids had printed their salacious stories. The headline screamed his guilt in the court of public opinion. For instance, the very first headline read, 54 women fed to pigs, all capital letters. But here's the question. Is that true? It fell short of 69. <laughs> Despite what the public thought about thought and the tabloids were printing, even though Robert had officially been charged for seven counts of first-degree murder, he deserved his inalienable right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. And that's true. Exactly. So he hadn't even had his first trial appearance yet. That wasn't scheduled for another six months at the earliest. The Vancouver Task Force search team had already declared they did not expect to wrap up their search on the farm before spring of 2003. That's like a year out. However, they stated it could take even longer than that. Therefore, when that first tabloid article was published, the remaining 47 low-track prostitutes were still only classified as missing. Right? (laughs) In other words, saying they had been victims of murder, let alone killed by Robert Picton, was nothing more than conjecture on the media's part. But the media's good at that. Oh, very good at that. You know, and then they, you know, it's just freaking ridiculous. They will go and they will talk so much shit and they throw everything out there. And then, at the end, they'll change the story. See, we said that all along. Well, no, right. you were saying something totally opposite. Like, yeah. Well, no, we always said that he only had, like, two victims. No. No, at first you said he had 20. Yeah, you said, yes, he was charged with seven, but you assumed he had 50 million. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's, just, it's, it's ludicrous. It's freaking, yeah. but that's the media. That's now, the media. But here's another interesting fact. The estimate of 54 victims was only the tip of the iceberg. On February 13, 2002, before he was charged with his first count of murder, a spokesperson for Prostitution Alternatives Counseling Education, that's the name of the business. Wow. Yeah. So basically education for hookers. Huh? It's like education for hookers? Yeah, counseling and educating hookers, yes. That's fantastic. Prostitution uh, Alternatives. So oh, I thought like this is the proper way. Alternatives to prostitution. This is the proper way to give a blowjob. Oh, oh, oh! <laughs> like Bob the Drag Queen says, you gotta take it like a porn star. <laughs> That's right. I want to get my fifty None cents worth. None of this worth. whole decent. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I'm so no. sorry. That was bad. <laughs> I don't like it when the chick gags on it. Like seriously, just like fucking have have a good time. Don't don't make me think you're gonna vomit well, on me. Yeah, That's gross. see, and that's just it is. 
Never mind. I'm not getting into it on the air. It's freaking gross. Like if a chicken is. Well, yeah. Because now I'm thinking that you're going to like Ralph on me, and that's disgusting. That's that's a mood killer. Is that worse? Because every once in a while you do have, I mean, even though you don't normally have a gag reflex with that kind of thing, every once in a while you hit that one area that it's like, uh, you know, but then it's like you pull back a little. Okay. Yeah, uh, okay. Yeah. Since we're on that subject, <laughs> follow that rabbit hole. <laughs> you know, I got no problem with like a little bit of a, uh, like that. Because, yeah. hey, mistakes happen. That's got, yeah. that's cool. But if it's a constant thing. Oh, yeah. No. That's. To me, I'm thinking this chick's gonna throw up on me, and that's not good. Well, see, not, I don't I'm like to throw up that. anyway, so I don't like that anyways. But no, I've had I've heard guys say they do. I like weirdos. That's, that's because those are probably the ones that like you to poop on them too. So. That's that's the control issue thing. They want to make they they, they want to pretend like their their pecker's bigger than what it is. Oh yes. Yeah. So, oh, so they drive the big trucks, the jacked up trucks. Right. Right. <laughs> They sit there and they they, they want to pretend like they got like an eight inch pecker when they really they're working with like three and a half. <laughs> that much. Yep. <laughs> Missed it by that, that much. <laughs> so, anyways, their statement said there were approximately 110 sex trade workers from Vancouver's downtown east side who had been abducted and or murdered in the past 20 years. So they're saying that the 54 is just half the number. However, information compiled in a computer database released by the RCMP, you know, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh-huh. indicated the statistic was actually higher than 110. They placed the number of missing and suspected foul play involved and or murdered downtown Eastside prostitutes at 144 over the entire province. Now, suffice it to say, the entire Vancouver police force was facing criticism, right? Now, let me play devil's advocate for just a moment. I know that with so many missing and or murdered women in the area, despite the fact that they were prostitutes, it would be rather comforting to assume there was only one person responsible, correct? Correct. But let me ask you this. Is that a realistic assumption to base your hopes on, considering that happened over a span of 20 years? No. Right. It's not realistic. Like, let, exactly. Let's be real on this. Over a 20-year span, you yeah. have to say it at least, at minimum, has to be three people. Yeah, you would think so. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, because there's, there's another actual kind of unsolved solved case that I'm going to cover later that kind of asks that same question. So consider this. Before Robert was indicted on the first two charges of murder, the Vancouver Task Force had already informed the public they were looking at several potential suspects, correct? Correct. And exploring multiple theories, Correct. Correct. So there were at least three different factions within the ranks, each with their own theory. The sex trade workers, one theory was the sex trade workers from Low Track were being abducted by one or more long haul truckers who were killing them and disposing of them in remote areas or perhaps on the south of the border. Another theory was they were all abducted by space aliens. I did not go there, but okay. And then they were being probed. And then they were like, that's $20, space alien. And you, do you have crack cocaine on you? Mr. Gray Man. <laughs> Come here, Mr. Gray Man. That's $20. <laughs> it's bad. So, another theory is that the prostitutes had been lured away or abducted into a sex trafficking ring and taken onto cargo ships heading overseas. Perhaps some of them were raped by crewmen on those ships, murdered, and their bodies thrown overboard and were in the depths of the ocean. Okay. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, which is a total plausible theory. Very, very, yeah. So, 
the then the third theory is the women had either moved to a different location, escaped the lifestyle, overdosed on drugs, or succumbed to another disease, which is another viable theory. True, true, true. Okay, so even after Robert was arrested and charged with murder, and especially before that, the only thing conclusive about the Vancouver Task Force investigation was the conflicting theories. <laughs> you know, the only thing for certain is the uncertainty. Yep. So, whenever a private corporation or public agency receives major criticism, it's not unusual for the public to speak out. That was the case with the backlash the Vancouver PD received regarding their lack of interest in taking action when low-track women started disappearing. For instance, on April 17, 2002, Dennis Bernston, an attorney in Victoria, B.C., publicly announced his intent to file a multi-million dollar class action lawsuit. In his affidavit, he noted he was seeking damages for the families of all the murdered and missing women associated with his case. He listed the Vancouver PD, Robert Pickton, and the RCMP as the parties responsible for paying the damages. Now, in the original filing document, he accused Vancouver PD of, quote, willful negligence in the way they handled this case. He told reporters deaths may have been prevented. All of these women were somebody's child. Someone loved them, which I agree with. And however, some of the people that loved him paid him $20. However, to hold Robert Pickton at that early stage on April 17th as a defendant, you know, as a seeking damages against him was premature. It is. Yeah, because he, he had yeah. not been convicted of anything yet. Yeah, I was going to say, he'd only been indicted. He hadn't been convicted yes. of jack shit. Exactly. So that's where I went with that. Now, the families of the victims also had conflicting viewpoints regarding the public outrage surrounding the way the Vancouver authorities handled their investigation. For instance, Marty Frey's stepmother, Lynn, she actually told the reporters, she goes, everyone's fighting about lawyers, inquiries, or fundraising, yet none of that is going to bring our loved ones back. True. And she has a valid point. Yeah, and it's true, yeah. You know, you can sue anybody, but it's not going to bring that person back. You know, that's a fact. So several family members of the aboriginal victims had complaints about the interference by the native liaison unit for the Vancouver PD. Their major point of contention with their complaint was how the unit allegedly told them not to talk to the media. Helen Hallmark's mother, Kathleen, flat out ignored that imposed ban, saying we need to meet among ourselves. And I'm tired of the native liaison unit telling us what to do. I mean, that's like the Vancouver PD telling family members they can't say anything. Yeah. That's no not their job. Yeah, no. No, it isn't. And I, and I agree. Yeah. She actually said that she intended to retain one of Johnny Cochran's legal partners so she could file petitions with the court to intervene if necessary. And then the person would go, see, if the glove don't fit, you, you must, must have quit. quit. <laughs> I won't lie. I'll testify. <laughs> On the other hand... Some families expressed their outrage at the case, and understandably so. Carrie Kosky's sister, Val Hughes, publicly supported the task force continued investigation. However, she did say in an interview with the province, like all family members, I feel molten rage when it comes to the Vancouver City Police. Their view was that it didn't matter if a serial killer was at work, as long as it was confined to one geographical area where the women were expendable people no one cared about. 
They told us our loved ones were just out partying. We want a full public inquiry, not to interfere with that criminal investigation prosecution but to get answers which i agree with too i agree yeah you know she's like yeah we have a right to be angry and we deserve an inquiry but don't let it in- interfere with the criminal prosecution which when you start throwing out accusations that he killed 54 women that interferes because that taints the jury pool right 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 and no, no matter where he goes even if they move yeah, the venue exactly to, like let's say from from bc over to alberta Exactly. They're still going to hear about it through the media over there, and they it's still tainted. They could change Washington, and it would still taint it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's ridiculous, man. Yeah. So there were also several people and groups working on public fundraising efforts to raise money for increased awareness and resources for the issues low-track residents were facing. Several musicians from Canada released a statement declaring their intentions to release a benefit song. Similar to We Are the World and Do They Know It's Christmas, their proposed song, A Buried Heart, would help bring awareness to the victims. And proceeds of the album sales would be dedicated to building a treatment and recovery center. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Treatment and recovery center for that area. Okay? Which I think is a good thing. Right? And the artists who had signed up for it, who said that they, you know, were going to participate were Nelly Furtado, Gord Downey, who I don't know, Colin James, who I do, don't know, John Wozniak, who I don't know. And everyone's favorite Canadian benefit artist, you know? Cat Stevens? I don't fucking know. Sarah McLaughlin. Oh, she's from Canada? Yes, you didn't know that? I didn't know that, huh? I I expected you to get that one. Because you just sang in the arms of an angel earlier. That's because that's me when I'm on on my shower floor crying (laughs) in a fetal position. (laughs) So, however, (laughs) when when the girlfriend... (laughs) In the bad day book? Yeah, in my bad day book. When the mom is sitting there going, I bet you're hung like a bull. Grabs my crotch. That's, that, that, that's bad touch. That's bad touch is what that is. Huh? Sarah McLaughlin. However, I Mama will... likes that. <laughs> I, I will note this. That when I tried to find information on the release of that song, I couldn't find anything. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't released and the benefit never took place. I'm just saying that when I search for something and cannot find it, Usually, chances are pretty slim. It's not out there to be found, except for rare instances where, you know, Brian Engel can find it for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I mean, he does it, but, you know. So, on a similar note, though, Val Hughes also told reporters the Bank of Montreal had established a missing woman's trust fund and public donations were welcome. All monies collected at the donation locations would fund the building of a rapid opiate detox center in downtown Eastside. Which I thought was very nice, too. I mean, because that's what those women need. You know? Yeah, I'll agree. A lot of... I mean, you'll find out later that a lot of these women, I don't think, wanted to be prostitutes. They just felt it was their only option. Probably is. Lack of skills. Yeah. They're not here, you know, freaking saying, Scotty, what can I do for you? They ran away because they were escaping something. Or they were kidnapped into sex trafficking. You never know. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So... Between the end of nobody's eight- kidnapping me and making sex traffic, kind of disappointed. Scott, I that. hate to tell you this, but you're in nobody's victim pool. I want to be in someone's victim pool for molestation. I'm a good-looking guy. I deserve to be molested. I don't even know where to go with that whole statement. <laughs> Just saying, I need some old cougar to come and go. Hey, somehow you doing? Get into my van? And I'll be like, okay. Like I don't have to offer you candy. Nope, I'm in. Let's go. <laughs> let's, get, let's get on with the molestation. 
Get on with it. <laughs> so between the end of April 2002, when Robert Picton received a seventh murder charge and October 1st, when he received four additional charges. <laughs> However, uh, wait, between the end of April 2002, when he received his seventh murder charge and October 1st, 2002, he did receive four additional charges. However, I wasn't able to determine <coughs> which victims were listed in those indictments. Then on October 2nd, he was arraigned on four more first-degree murder charges. The victims listed in that indictment were Tanya Holick. I know. Just for Holick. Sherry bit. Irving. <laughs> Inga Monique Hall. And Heather Chinook. Right? Like a, like a, okay, so I guess she smelled like fish. I don't know. She's probably native. Yeah, probably. You know. So Tanya and, and Inga were actually added to the original list compiled by the Vancouver Task Force because Tanya went missing in October of 96. And Inga went missing in September, in February, on February 26 of 1998. Although Sherry vanished two months after Tanya did, she wasn't reporting missing until much later. Therefore, she and Heather were added to the later lists. Now, if I'm counting correctly, in the eight months since the Missing Women's Task Force started their extensive search of the Picton property, they positively matched the DNA of 15 missing women. At that time, the Vancouver Task Force had 63 names on their list. During a press conference, Constable Galliford actually said this case is now the largest serial killer investigation in Canadian history. Although he's classified as a spree killer and not a serial killer, in late 89, a guy by the name of Mark Lapine walked into the Montreal University uh, Polytech, Polytechnic whatever building and shot a secretary and 14 female students before he turned the gun on himself and committed suicide. Excluding himself, he was responsible for the death of 15 women. Okay, But he's not classified as a serial killer. Now, however, with convicted serial killers, before Robert's arrest, the most prolific serial killer in Canadian history was Clifford Olson. I figured, yeah. Yeah, in 1982, just to recap, he pled guilty to 11 counts of first-degree murder, and he murdered <coughs> at least 11 children who he abducted in the greater Vancouver area. Now, by mid-October 2004, the authorities in Vancouver could link even more victims to Robert Picton and his pig farm. Their most recent announcement in, by then claimed the remains of approximately 30 missing women had been found. According to a report released by Fox News, quote, police found human body parts in freezers used to store unsold meat. They also discovered remains in a wood chipper and the victim's bodies turned into pig feed. Now, in the United States, when there is a case like this, there's no shortage of media coverage, Right. Right. I mean, like, no shortage. However, Canada has a very controversial law, which bans any news outlet from reporting on details outside of public news conferences held by the authorities. Thank God. We should have yeah. that here. I swear to God, half the news uh, outlets out here need to learn to shut the fuck up. Exactly. However, there are definite pros and cons associated with that legal ban. On the pro side... There's a lower potential for jury bias often associated with extensive media coverage of high-profile cases. On the con side, the public is denied their right to hold the authorities accountable for the quality and efficiency of the official investigation. Which, I think that would happen more towards the trial. I would think so too, you know, yeah. Because it would come out in trial. You cannot interfere with an investigation <coughs> and expect the police to tell you what they're finding 
in an ongoing investigation. You can't. Well, uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like when the media is sitting there and spouting out all their theories as facts and things oh, like yeah. that. You know, people want to inject themselves into everything. everything. So here they are. They're they're you know, fucking with an investigation. Yes. Whether and a trial, whether it be just by word of mouth or trying to actually call in tips, like I saw him. He was a five foot eight uh, white guy who with a you know with a beard and wearing a beanie hat. Yeah. Type of a thing. You know, just wasting time. Media needs to learn to shut the hell up. Exactly. Exactly. I'm done bitching about that now, motherfuckers. So according to a report issued by CBC News, Aboriginal leader Ernie Cray, as well as several others, were extremely critical about how long it took Vancouver authorities to launch an investigation in this case. Since 2000, several news agencies and blogging sites repeatedly reported on the problems surrounding the investigation, or should I say lack of investigation. There have been many times in the past we have said, and we've said it in the, this series already, prostitutes are people too, damn it. They are, man. I love her. Yes. In other words, when it comes to prostitutes being victimized, the authorities are less than enthusiastic about investigating the matter. Many erroneously assume the woman moved on to a different location to solicit her services <laughs> or, they claim the possibility, or they claim the possibility she left the trade altogether. Either way, the cases are never investigated the way a similar case involving a middle to upper class woman is handled. Now, around the same time, though, six years after the disappearances were brought to the attention of the Vancouver police, Corporal Corporal, she was previously Constable Gallifer, right, (laughs) told Toronto Sun six years after the disappearances were brought to their attention. Believe it or not, we're still in the somewhat early stages of our investigation. My jaw dropped. Are they for real? (laughs) Six years later, you're still beginning an investigation? Jiminy Christ. That's ridiculous. It's because they're hookers. That's that's exactly why. Exactly. It's just because they're hookers. Exactly. And nobody gives a fuck about them. Exactly. So, Robert Picton, at that point, was (laughs) facing 21 counts of murder. The six new victims listed in the latest indictment were Yvonne Bowen, Wendy Crawford, Carrie Kosky, Don Cray, Andrea Borhaven, and Kara Ellis. There were also three more victims. However, they had yet to be identified, so charges had not been filed yet. The prosecutor stated Robert's trial wasn't even expected to begin until mid to late 2005. Jesus Christ. And he was arrested in February of 2002. So that's ridiculous. That yeah. is not due process. No. That is not, uh, you know, uh, you have a right to a fast and speedy trial. You do. And uh, let's say for just argument's sake that he was innocent. Yes. This guy's going to sit in prison for three friggin' years mm-hmm. before you even start a trial. Before you start preliminary hearings. Stupid. It's Which, a, that's asinine, man. We all know man. preliminary hearings are happen about a year before the trial. <clears throat> it's freaking stupid. On average. Yeah. So the publicity ban for Robert's case was implemented right before his original preliminary hearing was scheduled in July of 2003. The judge ordered the ban so that sensitive information regarding the case couldn't bias potential jurors before the trial began. However, despite the judge's order, some of the evidence presented at the uh, initial preliminary hearing were leaked to the press and reported nationally. 
According to Peter Ritchie, Robert's defense attorney, they were afraid something like that would happen. He said, our concern all along is that we cannot control it. So we're going to have to follow it to see what has been published. Now, before the information leak, relatives of the missing low track women had formally accused the Vancouver PD of mishandling the investigation. You think? I think so, too. Yeah, yeah. No, I've got to agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. They stated the department had, quote, ignored evidence that a serial killer was responsible and didn't take the matter seriously before many of the women were prosecuted be- because many of the women were prostitutes and drug addicts. However, there are actually some who defended the department. For instance, Dr. Elliot Layton, he wrote the book Hunting Humans. He said, and I quote, and this kind of irritated me, responsible people have to be careful about making wild pronouncements about possible serial killers. When we are not sure if it is true, then it is inappropriate to throw people into a state of panic. Prostitution is a very dangerous profession and many people and many of the people in it are wanderers and not well connected to any conventional system of government controls or social services. So they can drift away from the system without being noticed for a very long time, even when nothing may have actually happened. Okay, this is true. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't see anything wrong with that. But consider this on the large scale that they noticed women, you know, the vast number were missing. You would think that there's something more going on. Yeah, you know, okay, and here's the thing that just now hit me. They had a hook book going on, right? No, they had the uh, bad date book. Oh, the bad date book. Okay, yeah. Fine. But you would think that they would go around and ask the other girls, hey, man, I haven't seen Tiffany around here. Because there's cops that work that beat, I'm assuming, oh, right? You're, I'm pretty sure they would have been, yeah. Yeah, I think that every major city across the, the, the Americas has that. Uh, we're, they we're should, cops. anyways. Yeah, they should. But they, they would, hey, what, have you seen Tiffany? Like, what happened to her? And if you, if, if everybody is, you know, with these girls and saying, no, we haven't seen Barbara, Tiffany, da da da, da in like forever. Yeah. You have a problem. If you're getting things like, hey, what happened to Lisa and Tiffany? And it's, oh, well, Lisa moved to like Calgary and Tiffany moved to Montreal. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. You know what? Legit totes. Yeah, those are totally legit. You know, if 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 all the people there, is they're going to tell somebody, they're going to tell one of their coworkers. I'm sure that you tell your coworkers that too. Um, if you you know move to like a different street, um, you know that they're going to move. Right. They're not going to. It's not like a hidden secret. Like I'm going to secretly move. Right. But okay, but we ran into this with the Grim Sleeper. Remember Lonnie Frank, David Franklin Jr. Yep. When, you know, that there was an obvious problem in the area where people noticed that people were going missing, right? And the police, quote, had their, uh, what were they called? Um, not like secret indictments, but you know what I mean? Like their hidden investigations where they weren't telling the public shit. Right, right, right. Which I don't think is right because you need to warn these people, hey, there's a potential problem here. Yeah. You know? I agree, you know, keep people safe. Yeah. You Especially know, but, the hookers, man. Because exactly. I don't care what anybody says. Number one, they're out there performing a service. And well, yeah. And if they don't know that there's a even more of a danger than what's already there, they're going to continue doing their daily thing. Exactly. Just, you, you know, know, fucking help, help a hooker out, man. Well, and imagine the the uproar that happened when Kim Rossman came forward and said he had his theories back in the beginning that were blatantly ignored. Yeah. You know, the, the ge- geographical profiler. Right. Yeah. 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 The the public was not happy. Now, the day before Robert's preliminary hearing took place, 
The authorities announced they were looking into another potential crime scene. They were searching a site located approximately 40 miles east of Vancouver. It's across, the location is across from the, I don't even know how to pronounce it, Lougheed Highway on Highway 7. It's a well-known high-traffic area. And according to Galliford, she said, we started in this area based on evidence we uncovered during the course of our investigation. She said the department had only just recently become aware it was a potential crime scene. Right before she made her announcement, investigators with the Vancouver Task Force notified the relatives of the 63 missing women on their list to tell them about the new direction the investigation was taking, which I think is appropriate. Yes. Right. So they're not shocked by the news. Right. 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 And um, Sarah Jean DeVry's sister, Maggie, she told the reporters it's encouraging and horrifying at the same time. It gives me the sense that more might be discovered. Um, now, here's some more disturbing information about this case. In March 2004, it was this more disturbing information was made public. Dr. Perry Kendall, a provincial health officer in British Columbia, released a statement to the media that shocked the nation. It disgusted me. According to a report published by AP Worldstream, Dr. Kendall said there was a strong possibility the remains of some victims were combined with pork meat that had been processed for human consumption. <laughs> no. That's method. Wait. Oh, wait, I get there. Give me a minute. It's very disturbing. He says it's very disturbing to think about, but there is the possibility of cross-contamination. But the degree of it or when or how much, we really don't know. Anyone who may still have frozen pork products from Picton's Farm should return those products to the police. You think? (laughs) So an article published by the Toronto Star on March 12th claimed that Robert was well known for inviting low-track prostitutes and others out to his farm. The article said he was generous, cooking for them, handing out drugs, hosting wild, never-ending parties. And the reporter also said investigators on the case were concerned he had served some guests who had tendered his lavish events meat tainted with the remains of his victims. Mm, yummy. Tastes now, like prostitution. An article published by UPI claimed the potentially tainted meat was never commercially distributed. However, approximately 40 of his neighbors, friends, and event guests were given some of the pork meat for their own personal consumption. I wonder if they gave the actual taint. <laughs> so, as expected, those who received the tainted meat were concerned about potential health effects consuming the meat would have on their health, especially since a lot of the victims had diseases such as AIDS and Hep C, right? I thought that tasted like Deborah. <laughs> You're so stupid. <laughs> very familiar, very familiar. In response to their worries, AP Online published an article titled Human Mains Maybe in Canadian Meat. The risk of any human disease being transmitted to those that have consumed the tainted meat is minimal. If the pork was cooked thoroughly, it is likely that any infectious agents present in the meat would have been destroyed. I just, but wait, hang on. I gotta correct something. In the, the media's attempt, oh crap. <laughs> The media's attempt to assure those who had possibly consumed the meat their health was most likely not in danger wasn't well received. 
the more the mere thought they might have accidentally eaten human flesh against their knowledge disgusted and infuriated them a sentiment i completely understand who can forget how <laughs> disgusted i was when scott served pulled pork sandwiches before he presented joseph methany <laughs> that was awesome that was epic i thought i it was out. disgusted <laughs> <laughs> i'm telling you i was traumatized that was one of my favorite episodes just because i made pulled pork sandwiches it's a shock value <laughs> oh yeah that was almost as epic as your ring pop <laughs> joke. <laughs> almost. <laughs> but anyways, now Robert was arrested on February 22nd, 2002. But he had a long road ahead of him. Um, let's see. In March of 2004, the authorities announced his tentative trial date was set to begin in spring 2005. That would be approximately three years after he was taken into custody and charged with first of several first-degree murder charges. A reporter for the Toronto Star published an article quoting Mike Petrie, the attorney for the Crown, who has since died of complications related to COVID. But in the article, Petrie stated the delay in Robert's trial was due to, quote, more than 10,000 pieces of evidence from the farm that still had to be processed by forensic and lab techs. Still not as good as freaking oh, Char I, Charles Cheetah Inc. I'm telling you. So, therefore, the state needed more time to gather the evidence they needed to present their case, and the defense needed more time to plan their strategy. Even though Petrie said the delay allowed for both sides of the table to have ample opportunity to prepare their trial strategies, Peter Ritchie had something else to say. He told reporters, I'm ready to go right now. <laughs> Right? You're right, right. Since Canada abolished their death penalty, though, Robert was only facing multiple life sentences without possibility of parole if the jury did find him guilty. So the death penalty wasn't even on the table. So his first two trials for six, first, he, what happened was is they decided to split it up. They, it, they charged him and had him stand trial for six murders, right? Right. And then after that, he faced 20 other additional charges that they were going to try. So do you know why they do that? Yes. Let's explain I know exactly. It. Well, I get to it here. Oh, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. No, as I'm going through it, I'll explain. I, I actually explain it more towards the end. But his first of the two potential trials was for six of his first degree murder charges. That did, His preliminary trial began in 2006. And his actual trial did not begin until January 30th, 2007. God dang, okay? man. Five years after he was arrested. By then, many stages of the trial process had already taken place. It included the initial and subsequent interviews with suspect and potential witnesses, gathering and analyzing all the physical evidence found at the crime scene and or scenes, and victim profiles determined by federal law enforcement officials. They were only four weeks into the trial when Jack Mellis, an officer with the RCMP, took the stand to talk about blood evidence collected from Robert's mobile home on the family farm. He tested... This is... It's going to gross you out, some of this. Just wait. I doubt it. Uh, I don't know, man. It, well, maybe not gross you out, but be reminiscent of other killers we've heard about. Oh, okay. Go for it. Okay. He testified forensic technicians had gathered blood from a mattress in Robert's residence. When the DNA was analyzed and compared, it matched Mona Wilson. He said her hands and head were also recovered somewhere on the farm during the search in 2002. Then he testified the skull of a different victim was linked to Robert was discovered along the side of a 
British Columbia Highway back in 1995. God damn. Yeah, according to some reports I found, before Robert went on trial, they placed an undercover officer in jail with him. They called it an undercover cell plant. They did this to see if Undercover he w- brother, coming yeah. to you from Canada. Well, they did it to see if he would p- provide a fellow prisoner with more information than he had provided the detectives. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Right. So apparently, while Robert was awaiting trial, he bragged about using a rendering plant on the farm, from, you know, for the farm, to dispose of some of his victims' bodies. And he was irritated that the police had discovered what he was doing. During the initial stages of the investigation, multiple teens converged on the 17-acre Picton farm. According to an article published by the Vancouver Sun, they were searching for even, quote, the most minute piece of physical evidence, a bone, a spot of blood, teeth, hair shafts, to find enough material for DNA analysis. Over the next few years, they meticulously worked to excavate the entire property, and they dug deep down into the ground for evidence that may have been buried since the 80s. Damn. Yeah, so before the beginning of March, two more RCMP officers took the stand and testified about how they came across some horrifying human remains. In fact, those remains comprised victims' heads stored in a freezer in one of the many buildings. The forensic tech thawed out the remains in their lab and determined the body parts belonged to Angela Josbury and Serena Abbotsway. In the mud of the pig pen on the property, the search team found Brenda Wolf's jawbone. In a separate location, they found another jawbone that belonged to Marnie Frey. As February rolled into March, more law enforcement officials, members of search teams, and forensic techs specializing in DNA were called to stand. By April, they had already called 60 prosecution witnesses to give their testimony. Holy moly. (laughs) Since then, since at least 235,000 exhibits were going to be entered into evidence by the Crown attorneys, it didn't look as if they could rest their case for several months. And they were already four months into the proceedings. In an effort to avoid some extra time and expense of drawing out the state, out the state sides, both sides had a meeting. The defense agreed with the prosecution that it would take too long to call everybody to prove chain of custody. Right? Because that's what they have to do in murder trials. That proved, yes, I found it here. I begged it here. And the lab has to say, I received it like this. You know what I mean? Right, right. So, therefore, they agreed to stipulate everyone involved in collecting and analyzing evidence had handled it properly. Okay? okay. You know what? Let's just just say it did. Yeah, okay. Fair this enough. allowed the prosecution to forego calling all of those witnesses to the stand saying, yeah, we did it this way. I sealed it, initialed it, all that. I'm sure their decision was also relieved to the jury. <laughs> According to reports, as the trial inched along, the expressions Robert displayed indicated he was as bored as the media was. There was nothing in his actions that said he was remorseful. Every once in a while, he'd glance up at the witness on the stand. Otherwise, he just sat there staring in his face and doodling on the binder he carried to court every day. Well, there you go. He's just bored. Yeah. So we should have given him a Nintendo. Right. As the expert testimony dragged on, the entire process quickly became monotonous. Even though the testimony was gruesome, the scientific lingo made it uninteresting. Which I'm sure the tur- I'm pretty sure the jury was like, "What the hell," you know? Right, right, right. Because you can lose a lot of jury in all that scientific lingo, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> well, they, they they lose me as a jury member as soon as I get the jury notice. So <laughs> I know I saw it over there <laughs> in a pile of 
discarded shit. <laughs> so besides that, the defendant was an, un- besides that, he was an uneducated 57-year-old self-involved pig farmer. Although he was the most prolific serial killer in Canadian judicial history, the trial wasn't holding the attention of the media or the public. Right? Everybody's like, oh, well. So although he showed little to no interest as the prosecution presented their case, he did seem to perk up a bit, even hinting a smile at one point. That was when an expert took the stand to talk about what the forensic evidence had to say about a handheld reciprocating saw. Forensic pathologists found several cut marks on some bones collected from the farm. The expert offering the testimony said that approximately 10 of the 45 blades fitting the saw were allegedly responsible for the cut marks on several ribs and vertebra, Brenda Wolf's jawbone, and two heel bones. The reason they offered 10 of the blades into evidence was because they weren't able to determine which of those 10 blades actually made the cut. Too many Christmas. In fact, the expert's testimony might not have helped the prosecution like they would have hoped. He testified he knew for sure the blade of a saw had made the cut marks, but he could not definitively state it was a saw found on the pig farm. Then Dr. Gail Anderson, an expert in forensic entomology, said Josbury and Abbotsway's remains were exposed to environmental elements at least a few weeks, if not several months, before they were actually placed in the freezer. There was evidence indicating when the remains were placed in the buckets and carried to the freezer for storage, insects were also collected and frozen. The type of insects and their stage of development scientifically established the time frame. Now, forensic pathologists took the stand to testify from mid mid to late April into early May. Each one showed the jury graphic images of decomposing remains, including hands, heads, hands and heads, and they went over each autopsy they performed. The first pathologist corroborated the testimony of the expert who talked about the cut marks. He said a reciprocating saw was used to cut the skulls from behind and front. He also stated that at the point on the skull where the cuts almost joined but didn't slice through, somebody had manually forced the skull apart. Like they took it and like snapped it. God dang, man. That's determination right there. So the pathologist talked about how three victims had gunshot wounds. (coughs) However, none of the bullets recovered from the crime scene matched any of the firearms found on the property through ballistics testing. By this point in the testimony, Justice James Williams noticed the images, especially those of the like the sloughing skin and the maggot activity, were having quite a negative effect on the female jurors. So he had to call an end to testimony for at least a day. Dude, I would bet that it had negative effects on the male oh, yeah. jury members, too. I mean, there's only so much of that. Like, even me. I've got a pretty strong stomach. I just don't like bugs. I don't like bugs and bug activity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true, huh? Yeah, just not my dealio. Yeah. So when testimony resumed the next day, an expert took the stand. This is the part I'm getting to that might be reminiscent of another killer we've had. The expert took the stand and described the evidence collected from a 22 caliber revolver found on the property. Search team members discovered the revolver and noticed there was a dildo attached to the barrel. <laughs> dildo, the DNA collected from the dildo matched at least one victim and Robert. I shouldn't be laughing, but that's... My question is, is what, what, where was the dildo on him that it got DNA? <laughs> That's all I'm asking. Oh, that's 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 uh, where my mind went. It's a lot to handle. <laughs> kind of a lot. 
need that high power act in there. They went deep for that information. <laughs> Plunged right in. Boom. No, I kept thinking of Toy Box Killer. Yeah, no, I, that's yeah. Uh, David Parker Ray. Yeah, that's what yeah, I kept thinking about. Just, why, why would you... Why would you attach a dildo to a gun? Uh, Makes no sense. Uh, no, I'm just shaking my it's head. Like it's like psychological if you're torturing him that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. You know, the last expert to take the stand was a guy by the name of Tony Fung. He's a world-renowned forensic chemist. Chemist, excuse me. Forensic technicians found a syringe in Robert's office, which contained an unknown substance. The analysis results indicated the substance tested positive for methanol, which is common chemical in windshield wiper fluid. According to a report published by Cam West News Service, one of Robert's acquaintances testified Robert talked to him about how methanol could murder a drug addict. So when tissue samples and bone marrow samples from the victims were analyzed, they did not show methanol. However, all of the tissue samples tested positive for trace amounts of cocaine, Valium, diazepam, and methadone. That's, yeah, pretty yeah, common is, drugs, Yeah, right? especially among prostitutes. Yeah, I mean, get them all coked up. Exactly. You know, I want to let you know that I do like my women. Coke? Like I like my, like I like my booze. Filled with Coke? 15 years old and full of coke. Oh, my God. So, Richard. Okay, how about this one here? Okay, you don't like that one? Fine. I like my women like I like my coffee. Ground up and in the freezer. <laughs> or, or, I like my women like, my, like, my, like I like my coffee falling off the roof of my car. full of cream but okay no that's your mom <laughs> okay we're done. so richard brooks one of robert's defense attorneys asked toxicologist heather brooks if the drugs found in the victim's tissue samples were enough to be fatal and she refused to say that it could have caused her death that's important because the defense contended the women had died of self-inflicted drug overdoses now, two weeks into May, approximately four months after the trial began, forensic experts finally presented the jury with the human face, and the defense never tried to object or challenge the shift in testimony. Now, to humanize the victims, right, the prosecution had called approximately 70 witnesses to the stand by May 10, 2007. That's when the jury finally heard testimony that humanized the victims. Greg Joyce, a reporter present at the trial, published an article talking about how the prosecution team put together a 24-page booklet describing the victims, which they presented to the jury. As John Ahern, an attorney for the prosecution, read the information to the jury while Robert appeared to be following along. The authorities had compiled all the data they collected and mapped out the movements of each victims. The information came from medical records, welfare requests, pharmacy records, and contact with the authorities. For instance, the section about Brenda Wolf described how she was a single mother of two young children. Before her disappearance, she had actually gone to so social services and asked them for help with food stamps so she could feed her children. What little money she had that month had gone to buy small gifts so her children could have a nice Christmas. Oh, which, see, that's fucked yeah, up. Yeah, it's what, what any decent, loving mother would do in the same circumstance. I'm sorry. It is. So this also tells me she was probably working the streets to provide for her children. Yeah, man. Yeah. 
So despite their best efforts, the booklet still didn't really put a face on the victims. However, that soon changed. During the first trial, Robert was only being tried for six of the 26 first-degree murder charges. They were count one was for Serena Abbott's way, count two, Mona Wilson, count six, Andrea Josbury, count seven, Brenda Wolf, count 11, Georgina Pappen, and count 16, Marnie Frey. I'm just stuck on that poor mom who is, who's out I know. there trying to, you know, provide for kids. We've talked about this before. Yes. Is that not all hookers are like junkies no. and things like that. Some of them just don't have the skills to exactly. go out there and get a job to provide for them and their children. Mm-hmm. And, of course, anybody can say, well, if you can't afford them, don't have them. Well, guess what, Jack Hall? Sometimes shit happens, okay? Yes. And we love our kids. I, the, 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 there's been times when I've been down, mm-hmm. you know, and I've done everything that I can to provide for my children. Um, everybody's got a story. You don't know their story. And here's this mom. She's out there. Mm-hmm. You know, just trying the best she can. I want my kids to have a, a decent Christmas. You know, it doesn't have to be extravagant. And well, what's a good Christmas? Well, I'll tell you what. Like to Jake, when he was like five, six years old. Oh, yeah. A great Christmas was like, I spent like, oh, I don't know, 20 bucks. And I got him like a bunch of Legos and uh, and and things like that. Um, and and he, was, he was over the moon. He was happier. You know what? I do remember one Christmas I bought, I mean, I... This is back when I had a nice job and everything before, you know, I lost my job and decided to be a stay-at-home mom. Is I had stupid money, right? Not a lot of stupid money. Not like some people I know, but stupid money. And so I actually literally spent $1,000 each on my nephew and my son because my nephew was living with us. Do you know my son was happier with the boxes than I was with the toys I got him? Yep. That's kids, man. Like, literally, I could have given him a damn empty box and he'd have been happy. (laughs) You know, just I'm just that's that's just Jack. I'm just it thinking about this Jack. mom who's just out there, yeah, busting her nut, mm-hmm. trying what she has to. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that her first career choice wasn't you know, sucking Prost- dick. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're right. <coughs> I'm pretty sure you're right. <coughs> so, anyways, an employee by the name of Elaine <coughs> Allen who worked at a women's information safe house, which is actually known as Wish, it's a drop-in center. She told the jury she had personally known some victims. In fact, she knew five of the six. She also gave the jury details about what she knew about each of their lives. For instance, Andrea Josbury was soft-spoken, polite, and aware of other people's needs. In fact, she was probably the most well-behaved client Alan had ever met with at the center. The two of them often met for quiet conversation about Andrea's life. Then there's Serena Abbotsway. Went into the center. It was usually after she had been physically assaulted, and she always had fresh track marks from the IV drugs she used. Alan thought Georgina Pappen was a charming woman who was also very outspoken, which was rare with the women who went into the center because most of them were abused. Then there's Mona Frey's boyfriend was very demanding. In fact, she was only working the streets because he forced her to go out and make them money. You know? So it's like, this tells you that these women... Didn't, some of them didn't have any other options. Right, exactly. You know, and that, that that's what I'm kind of sitting over here thinking about is that here are these guys that have junkie girlfriends or pseudo girlfriends, right? And beating the shit out of them. Oh yeah. And they're 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 too afraid to leave, but they're also addicted to dope. Yes. You know, and they keep them addicted. Mm-hmm. And. It, you know, it's so easy for these assholes to go and beat the ever-loving fuck out of an innocent woman. I'm not saying innocent as far as right. they're not hooking and, and stuff like that. And these women who are dependent on this drug, 
aren't getting it because the guy says, I can't give it to you until you go get us money. Right. And and, and, yeah. and, and this dumb bitch isn't going to leave, and he's going to keep on beating the ever-loving fuck out of her mm-hmm. until, until she dies. Exactly. Or she gets abducted by a fucking serial killer. Exactly. It's just, it's infuriating. I just, I cannot right. stand it when I hear about these fuckheads beating the shit out of women. No, oh, no. I agree with you. God I agree with you. damn. I just... I'll stand by this theory, man. I'm a fucking fat, a middle-aged dude. If you're man enough to beat the shit out of your old lady, you're man enough to beat the fuck out of me. Let's go. That's right. I'll say that to someone's face. It doesn't matter if I'm behind this mic or to someone's face. You're man enough to beat her up? Let's do it. Yeah. See see how manly you are. Let's see how fucking manly you are, buddy. Yeah. Well, no, I agree with you. I'm I'm pissed just hearing it. 100%. No. I'm over here to twitch into This is going to make you even madder. Are you ready for this one? I suppose. Well, this next section, one, there were actually several more witnesses followed Allen's testimony. One said she ran a local focus group that some women who worked the streets, including the victims, would often attend. During those sessions, the focus group discovered some prostitutes were only in the sex trade industry to provide food, clothing, and shelter for their children. Although they received government assistance, it was never enough to feed their hungry kids, ever. So... Let me bring something to everybody's attention, especially here in the U.S., okay? It might be the same in Canada. <coughs> Excuse me. We have something here that I, that I call the underemployed. Oh, yes. These are people that go to work every day, okay? Mm-hmm. And although they're working 40 hours a week due to their skill set, mm-hmm. they don't make enough to survive. So they're getting some assistance mm-hmm. just to bear. And even with that... You know, they're barely making ends meet, and they try everything they can to get ahead. Exactly. I know several people like that. Yes. They're not lazy. They're not living off the system. They're just simply underemployed. Not everybody has, like, for example, not everybody has my skill set. Right. You know, like, if I was to hand you my my, my sheets of of music right now and say, hey, I need you to compose for me a sonata in E-flat. Please. Yeah, you wouldn't know where to start. No. Not even close. Uh, if, I can it, read music. I can't write it. <laughs> so not everybody's got like my Not everybody's a mechanic. Right. Not everybody's a doctor. Not everybody's a lawyer. True. Not everybody's a hooker. That's true. Everybody's got a specific skill set um, based on several factors. Right. And here we got people that didn't give a fuck about these women. Yes. And not all, like I said, not all of them were junkies. They were just simply they. they that was the employment yes. that they had to do to support themselves and exactly. their kids. Were there junkies out there? Of course. Of course there is. But you know what? Guess what, boys and girls? There's fucking junkies in every goddamn profession. Every fucking one of them. Your doctor? Your doctor's probably a junkie. He's probably doing some pills. Probably doing some scripts. Okay? Probably. (laughs) Um, The person cleaning your house probably has a little bit of addiction themselves. There's tons of junkies in every goddamn profession. Mm-hmm. So don't sit there and look at the hookers and go, well, she's just a fucking hooker and she's a junkie and that's why she's sucking dick. No. 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 She might be out there trying to feed her goddamn kids and just mm-hmm. trying to keep a roof over their fucking head so they don't all fucking freeze to death. Well, Get off your fucking high horses. Jesus right. fucking Christ. I'm, I'm just over <laughs> No, here. I know. Just no, God I agree with damn you because I'm so I will tell you from personal experience, this is what I don't like about the whole system too, is when you don't have a job or whatever, and you're looking for a job and you have a young child, the government will help with daycare. However, the more you work, the more you have to pay that daycare. So you're working to pay for daycare. You can't get ahead by, you know, saying, hey, government's helping me with daycare so I can put food on my table. Right. Exactly. You know, the government's helping with daycare so I can buy my kid clothes. That it doesn't work like that. 
No, I, I, you know, especially in the Pacific North. Okay, so I've had to collect welfare one time in my life. It was just food stamps because here's what happened: I was driving over the road, and I got a ticket in the state of Colorado it was for mm-hmm. a missing mud flap, <clears throat> and it was only a forty dollar ticket of which I paid. Right. Okay. So we'll fast forward. I'm going to renew my license and everything like that. And they go, Mr. Alexander, we can't renew your license. You have an outstanding ticket in the state of Colorado. This was a couple of years later. So and I'm you're all, like, horseshit. I'm all, outstanding ticket? What? So I call Colorado. And they go, yeah, it was a missing mud flap ticket. I said, but I paid it. I'll send you a, a copy of the check. Said, okay, but, you know, we can expedite that. We can release your license in the next couple of days if you pay us 80 bucks. I said, no problem. You know what? I'll go get you a money order right now. It's before we can do everything on, online and right. things like that. And I will freaking FedEx it to you. And I did. I FedExed it to them. What they didn't say was that the department that gets that money is different than the par- department that processes that money. Oh, okay. Is different than the process uh, the, the department that releases your license in a different state. Oh, my God. Two months. I'm out of work. Oh, my gosh. Two months. Okay. And in that time, I knew that I had to feed my son. Oh, yeah. So I went down and I collected food stamps. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was kind of weird because when I, when I went there to do it, they uh, looked at me and said, Mr. Alexander, you've worked all your life. I said, yeah, I have. Give me some money. And they're like, um, we can barely, we can give you some food stamps, I guess. I said, oh, fine. As long as I feed my kid. Right. Um, fast forward, that tax year, I collected $900 in food stamps. Mm-hmm. And they took it back out of my taxes. Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had to pay it back. Keep it in mind, I'd already paid in my taxes into that system. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Totally. So, yeah. It's I'm ridiculous, just, isn't it? it? Yeah, and you're right. They don't make... And so this is what got me the most. I'm back to work. Everything's A-OK, right? Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so I call up the welfare department, DHS. And I go, hey, I don't need it anymore. Um, we need a written 30-day notice. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. I said, I don't need it. You, you know, well, there's already money on your card. You don't understand. Give it to someone else. I don't need it. Right. You know, I had to give them a written freaking notice. Wow. That I didn't need this service. That's weird. That was stupid. Yeah. <clears throat> so then another witness took the stand to give more information about her friend, Georgina Pappen. According to her testimony, Georgina had actually gotten clean. And the two of them would spend a lot of she time took a together. <laughs> I meant off drugs. Oh, Scott. I thought she was all dirty like you were. <laughs> no. Dirty They arms. spend a lot of time playing cards and baking and everything. And that's how she got dirty. No, however, Georgina actually relapsed a short time later. And uh, relapsed, and a short time after her relapse, she vanished. Then one witness was a former drug dealer and prostitute herself. She was also a friend of Brenda Wolf, and she told the court that before Brenda disappeared, she was so far gone in her addiction, she had stopped washing her clothes and bathing. In fact, right before she went missing, she'd lost over 50 pounds and was a shell of her former That's self. discount pussy is what that is. It stinks, but... I hate you. That's that. Even that's a two-for-one coupon right there. Right? Even though those witnesses tried to put a face on the six women who had lost their lives, they still didn't shine a spotlight on the troubled lives each victim had. At that point in the trial, the prosecution didn't even call any of the family members to the stand. In fact, about after the above testimonies were heard, they immediately called witnesses to testify about what Robert may have done with the victims after he killed them. 
including rendering plant employees. On Tuesday, May 15, 2007, the jury in Robert's trial heard from first of several employees at a local animal rendering plant. Attorneys for the Crown alleged Robert used West Coast Reduction Limited to dispose of the remains of some of his victims. The plant isn't very far from Low Track and is the only animal remains disposal site in Vancouver. They pursued this theory after they received information from the undercover officer planted in Robert's cell after he was arrested in February. Undercover brother. Yeah, the entire undercover operation was caught on tape and played for the jury during the opening statements. While watching the recording, the jury clearly saw Robert having a conversation with another prisoner. That prisoner had already been identified as the undercover officer. And during their conversation, the, quote, prisoner told Robert dumping a body in the ocean was the best way to dispose of a murder victim. To which Robert responded, he did one better, a rendering plant. (laughs) For those wondering what a rendering plant is, just let me give you a quick dictionary definition. It's a plant that converts packing house waste, kitchen grease, and livestock carcasses into industrial fats and oils. And you and I talked about this. They can be used as tallow for soap and cosmetics and various other products such as fertilizer after going through a grinding and cooking process. It's gross. But I mean, ugh. just to think that some people use makeup like that is gross. That's where I'm dropping you off. Shut. I had a rainery plant? Thanks, yep. Scott. So the plant superintendent, Merle Morris, was the first employee to take the stand. He told the court the plant currently only allows suppliers to dump the remains of fish, pigs, and chickens. However, prior to 2002, small operators could take all kinds of animal remains into the plant and dump them with little to no supervision. According to reports, the heightened security measures weren't instigated by Robert's arrest. They were implemented in response to attacks on September 11th. Now, a Crown lawyer asked Morris, prior to those changes in 2002, would it have been possible for a small customer to dump unauthorized material in a pit unsupervised? And Morris said yes. Mostly large operators go around to stores, slaughterhouses, and butcher shops, gather the waste material, and deliver it to the plant. However, small operators or private establishments also use the plant to dispose of animal waste. Now, after Morris... They called a guy by the name of James Cress. He was employed by the plant to pick up animal waste from small operators and haul it in for processing. He told the jury he would go to Picton's farm approximately once a week, and each time he would pick up anywhere from two to five 45-gallon barrels of animal waste. And he identified Robert as this Bob, his contact on the farm, who often helped him load the barrels. According to the official court records, he said that he actually looked inside the barrels on at least one occasion. There were chunk, He says there were chunks of pork. They were burnt black, big chunks. Now, when the prosecutor asked if that was unusual, he said they usually like to use every little piece of meat that is on from the animal because, you know, it's money, which I agree with, you know. So then they called. <clears throat> oh. Oh, the plant foreman. um, Okay, hey, Angel. They called the plant foreman um, Robert Bayers to the sand. Now, as Bayers answered questions, Robert sat at the defense defense table with a broad grin on his face and almost blushed, right? Like, I don't know why. Now, he positively identified Robert as the dirty guy who had been at the rendering plant approximately five to ten times over the years. And on at least two of those occasions, he had a woman with him. 
And each time he showed up, he had several barrels of animal bones and guts, which he disposed of in the pits. According to test, Breyer's testimony, at least one on one visit that stood out to him because it was so unusual. He said, I remember this guy dumping some old dirty barrels with his bare hands and I offered him some gloves. He was such a dirty guy. Then he talked such about, a dirty little boy. Yeah. And then he talked about a woman he'd seen on at least two occasions when Robert arrived to dump his barrels. Although he wasn't entirely sure Robert was with the same women both times, he was sure she was wearing a tracksuit. And he also thought she was rough looking because she had acne. Um, when Lopez asked, when the attorney asked Byers if he saw the other man in the courtroom, he pointed at Robert and saying, he looks cleaner than when I saw him. Now, according to Bayers, he said that before the whole mad cow, cow scare in the 90s, security at the rendering plant was very lax. He said, basically, there was no security. However, in 1997, in response to the mad cow epidemic, the security measures increased tremendously. They put in CCTV cameras. They had security guards to patrol the grounds, and everyone was required to have a pass card. However, um, he said that... Um, Let's see, where did, oh, apparently the rendering plants dumping policies after the changes in 1997 um, were, uh, when small suppliers brought in their loads, the barrels were supposed to be placed next to the pit and a plant employee would empty them. However, if a supplier emptied the barrels themselves, nobody said anything. Right, right, right. You know, so after going through the testimonies, of the three witnesses, although it was intriguing and suggestive, nothing was said that could definitively prove Robert had used the plant to dispose of his victims. But the trial wasn't over yet. For 16 weeks, people sat in the galley of the high-profile trial against the most prolific serial killer in Canadian history. However, for those who were in attendance, it lacked the drama one would expect from a high-profile crime. That changed in the next part, because that's when they started getting uh, their key witnesses, oh. acquaintances of Roberts, to testify. And that's where uh, we'll pick up part three. All right. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Get on to the Book of the Faces Facebook and join Citizens of Brutal Nation. Interact with us. Let's see. What else? Uh, I'm fabulous. Um... Toot, toot. That's right. Shake it, shake it, wiggle, wiggle. Shake it, shake it, wiggle, wiggle. Nothing. Images, no. images, no. You're welcome. <laughs> this show's copyrighted 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast, they're lying. Thieving bastards. bastards. We'll see you guys on part three of this Robert Picton pig farmer dude thing. Pig farmer. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.